Well, it is not Dad Joke Sunday, but I read an article this week that made me think quite a bit about it. That article gave evidence, at least uh, proclaimed evidence, and I don't know if you knew this, but dad jokes are good for you. Specifically, they are good for the kids of punny dads. A new study was recently released. Humor researcher Mark Knudsen in the Journal of British Psych- the British Psychological Society uh, released a study this week. I think I might actually consider subscribing to the British Psychological Society now. And, and it, it, it expressed the findings of this study that dad jokes actually have a positive effect on the development of kids that live in and surrounded by them. <clears throat> Not necessarily the subject of them. Okay, there's a difference in that. Uh, pastor's kids know that. But a quote from, uh, from uh, Mark High Knudsen states, When considered properly, dad jokes are an intricately multi-layered and fascinating phenomenon that reveals a lot, not just about how humor and joke-telling work, but also about the father's psychology and their relationships with their children. Uh, He goes on to write that uh, when fathers embarrass their kids, it, it, it actually teaches them how to deal with awkwardness through the dad's unfunny jokes. The only, the only issue I take with that statement is the word unfunny. I, I don't know where he's coming from there. But still, we all know that not everyone can pull off a good dad joke. It's kind of like fractions. Five-fourths of people are bad at them. And they just need to find something else. You know, you got to throw in... If you're talking about dad jokes, you have to throw one in there. Uh, But, you know, um, usually a dad joke is best delivered, and I think this is why it works well with kids, when when the people are kind of expecting a nugget of wisdom to to be unearthed from the conversation. And ghosts are particularly bad at them because, well, you can see right through them. They don't really get that... Delivery, right. But moving forward, and booze are actually evidence of a good dad joke, just to tell you. That's, that's how it works. People today could almost expect the verses that we looked at last week to, to be like they're waiting for a punchline. Like they're waiting for, okay, what's he going to say here? I mean, as if... They would expect, blessed are the poor in spirit, for it's better than lacking physical wealth. It's, it, it's all right. It's a, it's a pun, you know, that you don't have to laugh. Or, or blessed are those who mourn, because they get sympathy hugs. Or blessed are the meek, because they get to be considered a victim. It's got, you know, the, these statements of blessed are the, those who mourn. It's like, okay, where's the punchline here? Where's the joke? You have to wonder if the crowd listening to Jesus teach was expecting a punchline. As we read last week, he teaches, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. These statements, they weren't, they weren't new to biblical teaching. It's not like Jesus was saying something revolutionary as far as what had been laid out over the span of biblical history, over what scriptures, the scriptures, the law, the prophets had communicated. But, but how could any of these situations be considered a blessing to be in? These statements show how God's truth was turning men and women's expectations upside down. And this brings us to the second group of statements of the Beatitudes that we look here this morning. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think you can see how these statements here kind of turn a corner from the first four verses that we looked at. And if you can't see it, let me explain. Last week's, we looked at mourning and meekness and hunger that a Christ, the Christian experience involves when we are longing for God's kingdom, when we are a part of a different kingdom than the physical world that we are living within. These that we look at here this morning, they highlight more of an inner transformation, an inner transformation that comes with being a part of God's kingdom, even while we walk in a fallen world. We're not told, be merciful. We're not, we're not told, do mercy. We're told about what it means. Or, or, or more so, being merciful is being highlighted. Being pure in heart. Being about making peace. Today we look at these Beatitudes as God's blessing from the inside out. God's blessing from the inside out. There's a lot that's been taken from the Sermon on the Mount that has to do with ethics. How should we behave? How should we live out our beliefs? Ethics could be described as the principles and duties that should guide how we behave. Much of our parenting and grandparenting is concerned with ethics. It's concerned with how should, what principles should guide, should, should govern how this child should behave, right? Jesus presents some of the highest and perfect standards of behavior that the world has known. And we'll ask ourselves during our time in the Sermon on the Mount, how is it that we should respond to these commands? For instance, uh, are, are we going to approach 
the commands of Jesus through the Sermon on the Mount as if it's a do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. Many have approached it that way. As if you could say, you know, or think, well, it's all right for me to tell my neighbor you are an empty-headed imbecile as long as I don't say I hate you. Because if I say I hate you, then I'm guilty of hellfire. Or, you know, when I'm writing out a check for the offering, i got to make sure that my right hand doesn't know what my left hand is doing at the same time. Because that's what Jesus says. When you give, make sure your right hand doesn't know what in the world your left hand is doing. Or it's at the ethic of this is how you should fast. If you're, if you're going to lunch with somebody and it happens to be that you're fasting that day for some reason of prayer or something like that, and you say, actually, I'm not eating. Oh, why are you not eating? Oh, I don't know. Just not eating. Are you fasting? No, I'm not fasting. You know, because Jesus says, when you fast, don't make it known to others. Are, are we supposed to just shape our behavior by the commands within the Sermon on the Mount? Or if there's something deeper that's supposed to be happening, both shaping our behavior, but shaping it from the inside out. I believe that what Jesus is affirming here at the beginning, first things first with the Beatitudes, and throughout the commands of this sermon is what's called biblical virtue ethics. Biblical virtue Ethics. Godly behavior is expected and intended to increasingly flow from a changed heart. That's biblical virtue ethics. Our behavior working out of God changing our hearts. And we're going to talk more about this next week. And especially, I'd like to touch on it of how it should affect our parenting and our grandparenting when it comes to do this, don't do this. All right, but I don't want to get bogged down with it here this morning. But we should expect ourselves or others to increasingly do what's right from a changed heart. Even when we don't feel like it at the same time. And so I'm kind of trying to correct this. Our behavior as followers of Christ, should flow increasingly out of a changed heart. But that doesn't mean that if we don't feel like it, it doesn't matter what we do. Right? The goal is for God to change our hearts through our relationship with Him, obeying as an act of love. But sometimes the, the obeying helps us to love. It's kind of like a flywheel touch on that a little bit more next week. But what we're being taught by God here is about the standards of God's kingdom. In the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, the standards of God's kingdom is not just let your behavior match this standard, but God's standard is even deeper where for a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit should be indwelling us and changing us changing our behavior from the inside out. His standard is not only high, it is deep. And it is gracious. Looking here first this morning, I want to challenge you. Expect God, 
as a part of him changing you as a follower of Christ, expect God to make you more merciful as you experience his mercy. We're told, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There's something that goes off in our minds here, like a ding, ding. Okay, how am I supposed to receive mercy? How am I supposed to make sure that I will be shown mercy? And there are places in Scripture where God says, to the merciful, he shows mercy. But that is not what's being communicated here, okay? It's important to understand the difference between causation and correlation. The difference between causation and correlation. It's easy to look at these statements as how to get mercy, how to see God, how to be a child of God. The New Orleans Times Picayune ran a story. And it was to answer the question, a question that homicide offices all over the world had sometimes wondered about. Should ice cream be blamed for murders? Should ice cream be blamed for murders? And in this story, an expert is quoted as saying, the correlation between homicides and ice cream sales are this. When ice cream sales increase, the rate of homicides also increase. It's long been a topic of statistics and science classrooms. This is an example of the fact that correlation is not the same thing as causation. Ice cream's relationship to homicides is a statistical coincidence. They simply correlate. Ice cream sales do not cause homicides. People don't get ice cream headaches and go out and kill someone. The idea is that frozen treats causing crime is completely ridiculous. Ice cream sales, they, they, ice cream sells better in warm weather, and that happens to be when people are also out milling around, getting into arguments, and killing one another. They simply happen around the same, the increase happens in the same season of the year. The same can be said for the relationship in these statements. This is not a causation relationship between being merciful and receiving mercy. The follower of Christ is described as one who is merciful. One who should be growing in the virtue of mercy. Should be growing in the behavior of showing mercy. And they also happen to be one who will be receiving mercy from the Lord. You can see that even in the, in the relationship of the phrase starting with the word for, which, which I'll, I'll get to here. To be merciful means to withhold the judgment or the consequence that someone deserves. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. To be merciful is to say, this person deserves X, but I am not going to give it to them. I'm going to show mercy. The mercy that we look forward to in the future is going to be when Jesus comes to judge the world. This is specifically what I believe he is referring to here according to 
to the tradition that would have been in the hearers' minds and, and to uh, what is being described here. That, one, that when Christ returns as our judge, it so happens that followers of Christ are those who will be merciful and they will receive mercy. And the first question that should uh, confront us here is, am I going to receive mercy when Jesus, the judge, appears? That is not going to have to do, it's not going to be caused, the mercy that I receive is not going to be caused by whether or not I was merciful to other people. The mercy that I receive from Jesus is going to be because Jesus paid for my sin. That he is going to withhold the judgment that I deserve because that judgment fell on him and I have put my trust in his person and work, in his death and his resurrection. And therefore, he has purchased my mercy. You could rephrase this statement, the merciful Christians are blessed because they shall receive mercy. The for statement is introducing the reason why they're blessed. Their being merciful is not the reason why they receive mercy. Do you see that? It's not saying they shall receive mercy for they have been merciful. It's saying these folks are blessed. These merciful people are blessed. And the reason why they're blessed is because they will receive mercy. I know it's strange, but just trust me, what we're talking about here is correlation, not causation. Living in step with God's kingdom means being merciful toward others. We've seen this, and we will see this, as Jesus teaches a, a parable about a servant that owed his master money. He had either lost money or embezzled money or wasted his master's money. And it was such a hypothetical situation that the amount of money that Jesus describes this servant as owing to his master amounted at that time to larger than the wealth of Egypt. And his master showed mercy. Rather than having this man thrown into prison and forcing his family to work off his debt in order for him to be able to release out of mercy, the master forgave the debt. Prison is what he deserved. Judgment is what he deserved, but he showed him mercy instead. And then, of course, as you probably know, the parable goes that as that man walked out of his master's presence, having been forgiven the billions of trillions of today's dollars, he then goes and sees one of his fellow servants that owes him basically a day's wage and grabs him and starts choking him and, and telling him, pay back what you owe me. And the guy says, I'm sorry, I don't have it. And he goes and grabs a police officer and says, throw him in jail until he pays me back. That is why we should be merciful. Not because it's going to get us mercy. But because we have been shown mercy. Any mercy that we could ever show to someone else, our hearts should resonate with the fact, I have been shown trillions upon trillions multiplied more mercy 
from the one that I could never repay, God himself. Instead of being fearful of people taking advantage of us, we are to be merciful. Let God's mercy toward you overflow to others. And this is the inner transformation, the inner virtue of being merciful that we should expect that God is developing in us as we walk in relationship with him, as we interact with and recall and dwell upon the mercy that God has shown to us and that he has shown to you if you have trusted Christ as your Savior. In addition to expecting God to make you more merciful, expect also God to make you more pure in heart as you look to his presence. We're told, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You could rephrase this as the pure in heart that should be synonymous with a follower of Christ. They are blessed because they shall see God. Once again, it's not blessed are those who shall see God. They're going to see God because they've been pure in heart. That is not what's being said here. We are blessed knowing Christ is our Savior, growing in a greater pureness of heart, and we are blessed because we will see God. To to be pure here means to be free from moral guilt. To reflect Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4, it's a song of ascent, meaning moving upward. And, and, And a psalm of ascent, of moving up into the temple to worship God. And it says, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. I don't know about you, but if this is like a 100% purity of heart issue, I would not have been welcome to worship in God's temple. Salvation requires Jesus' perfect righteousness. To cover us. And his heart changing work is evidence that we are able to see God one day because of Christ. Christians, followers of Christ, those who are growing in a purity of heart, we are blessed in the fact that we will see God one day. This is talking about getting your heart ready to see your king. And as Christians, our lives should be marked by an ever-growing purity of heart. God's constant work of changing our heart's desires is a sign of his Holy Spirit indwelling us. This is a direct contrast to the outward legalism of the crowds that are hearing this. Just tell us what to do. Just tell us what to do. I don't know how comfortable you are with it. I think it's just kind of here. I don't know. There's probably people that do something to protest it or something like that. I figure if you want to get on a plane, you're just going to have to stand before this x-ray machine, right? 
I don't know what they see. I hope it's just bones, you know, my skeleton, any metal that I'm holding. But it's going to see through me. It's going to see all the way through me. It's going to see the deepest parts of me, bone deep, if you will. And that's what God sees too. And walking in a relationship with him, if you know Christ as your Savior, it shouldn't frighten us that God sees through to our heart and wants to work on our hearts. But it should inform our relationship with him so that we can say, Lord, I know you see what's there. I know that even though my feet are walking in this direction, you see that I am turning like this. It's like that meme, you know, they always show the guy holding the hand of his present girlfriend and he's looking back at his past girlfriend and they usually put something back there. It's like Trump, Biden or something like that. But guys, this is a freedom for us to say, Lord, I know I stand before you and you see all the way through me. You see what I desire. You see what I want. I'm not going to sit here and debate, is it sin when you're just wanting something but you're not really doing it yet? I take my heart to the Lord. We need to take our hearts to the Lord and say, Lord, this is my sinful heart. This is where it's pulling me. This is where it wants to take me. I'm embarrassed of it. I want you to transform it. I need you to renew my mind. I need you to transform my heart. Jesus is telling people that are hearing him, this is where walking in relationship with me, this is where the work is going to be done in our hearts. You are living out more of God's kingdom when God is fixing your heart, your desires. Timothy was told by his mentor Paul in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Peter tells us that we need God to make our hearts better ready to love one another. When he says in 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The idea here is to stop and say, how am I doing with loving? How am I doing with meeting my brother's needs? Not so good. Where's the problem? In here. That must be where the problem is. That's where God wants to work. Not out here of, well, I dropped that percentage amount into the box so or into the plate. So that means it doesn't matter what I do with the rest of it. God wants to work here. He's going to change us here. Our ethic is going to be based on the virtue that he is developing in us. We need pure hearts to solve the problems of lust as well as bitterness and envy that plague us. James tells us that every outward dispute flows from the conflicts in our hearts. We're told in James 4, 1 and 2, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel or riot and destroy. You do not have because you do not ask. So let's say you're minding your own business as a citizen of the kingdom of God, right? And someone's harassing you while you're just trying to be Joe minding your own business Christian. How should we expect God to be guiding his kingdom ambassadors when we're being harassed, possibly for being one of his ambassadors? What does God expect? What should we be expecting God to be changing about our hearts and how should it outflow from our lives? It's being a peacemaker. It's being a peacemaker even when you're not the cause of the conflict. Expect God to make you more peacemaking as you know who you truly are. We're told, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The lives of Christians should be marked by making peace with others. You could rephrase this. The peacemakers, which, you know, a follower of Christ should be known as a peacemaker... They are blessed because they shall be called sons of God. That's the correlation. The blessing comes from what we have to look forward to. Living in step with God's kingdom then means making peace with those who are intent on being at war with you. Kids, is there anybody living down the hall in your house? That you swear they're just intent on being at war with you? You see how God gave us the family to change our hearts? To show us our sin? To see how willing we might be to be a peacemaker in obedience to Christ? You can say as the result of God changing our hearts and turning us from our selfishness is that we are peacemakers. This flows from the peace that God gives us with himself through Christ. That's where it comes from. And it's evidence of the peace in our hearts that we have recalling who we are in Christ, sons and daughters of God. Think of an ambassador an ambassador to another nation. They, they represent the nation that has put them there. They, they are appointed by the president. They are uh, approved by the Senate. They, are, they move into that embassy. And their job is to make peace. The last thing that they should do is because the, uh, let's say, the 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 president of the other nation insults them, that they turn around and they say, my nation declares war on you. He would probably be like, what are you talking about? Certainly they're going to get recalled. They're going back home. That is not their job. Their job is to find peace, to make peace out of the security of their relationship with their homeland. We're no less ambassadors of God's kingdom on earth. And God hasn't called for us to declare war 
on this world. I'm going to read a, a lengthy passage of scripture from 2 Corinthians 5, but if you're familiar with it, you know why. Paul writes, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. And here's our identity. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. All believers have died with Christ. We have no agenda of our own. At least we shouldn't. And he died for all. And those who live, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. We have been changed. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And what is a part of that new? It's a new purpose of our lives. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I don't know why I said that so strange. But. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sakes, he made him who, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He said here in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And what does that sound like? We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Find the peace that I have found. This brings us to the last of our Beatitudes this morning. And it flows pretty well off of this situation of us being called to make peace. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus seems to be headed toward the topic of persecution in his teaching here. In fact, he, he's going to move more in depth than this, and we'll, and we'll um, see it in the following statements next week, the final beatitude and the unpacking of it that he does. So, but, but this morning, I want you to see here, as you grow into more of the image of Jesus, expect God to make you content with persecution. That's a tough statement. Expect God to make you content with persecution as you know to what kingdom you belong. The lives of Christians are likely to be marked by persecution for Jesus' sake. In America, we have experienced an unusual phenomenon of the last 200 plus years, relatively free from the persecution that the historical church has always experienced. But that time is ending. The lives of Christians are to be likely to be marked by persecution for Jesus' sake. And living in step with God's kingdom then means being treated poorly because of your relationship with God. 
You can rephrase this. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, they're actually blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can be encouraged that you're not doing something wrong when persecution is happening to you for God's glory. You know, it's been kind of fun to make memes of pictures like this. Moral outrage of the new morality, which is actually morality turned on its head. I remember it happened, started happening a few years ago when my sons were describing like a, a, a awkward situation or a kind of a confrontation they had with, with maybe a, a person at school and they described it as, well, they're triggery. They just get triggered. Or I said something that triggered them. And I know that when people have experienced trauma, the idea of triggers is a, is a real thing and stuff. But I think it's been uh, dragged through, um, popularized a little bit too much. To be triggered means to be caused to feel an intense and unusual negative emotional reaction. And more and more, people are getting triggered by statements like, there's only men and women. And it's pretty evident. Like when the doctor says it's a boy. It's a boy. It's always going to be a boy. I mean these are things that five years ago. Didn't trigger anybody. Now it can get you fired. We are going to see more and more of this triggeriness over simple ideas that fit God's natural law. When you are pursuing Jesus' total reign in your life, it is going to bring challenges from others. Rather than seeing these, these, uh, these expressions on TV or in memes, we are more likely to see them in our faces in the future. The fact is, this world is, is under the control of God's enemy, the devil. And he will use the reactions of this world to press us to be content with silence rather than being content with persecution. Now, again, balance this. We're not called to declare war on this world. We're called to be peacemakers. We're also not, not called to be silent, to be content with silence because we don't want to be content with persecution. We should speak up when God leads. Let me give you two questions. Maybe you're running into this already. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's somebody at work. Let me give you two questions that can minister to a person. And I really mean that that can minister to a person that gets seriously triggered by something that five years ago was basically common knowledge, common understanding of the way the world works. Here's the first question you can ask. Why do you feel or believe so strongly about this? Why the strong reaction to something that five years ago was just 
well accepted. The reason why you're ministering to that person in this situation is that you're getting, hopefully, if they will interact with you, you're getting at their need to be morally right. And I believe that's because they got to be morally right about something. And they feel so strongly, I believe, because this is what they have attached moral rightness to. That they believe this, therefore they are morally right. So to simply ask, why do you think you feel so strongly or you believe so strongly about this? Next question that can minister to the person is this. What is the basis of your feelings? What's the basis of your beliefs? You probably get something like, well, everybody or anybody with a brain. But what you're trying to get at here, how you're trying to minister to them, is is to get at the lack of a timeless authority in their life. You understand what I'm saying? We don't work from... If we're we're following Christ, we don't work from this idea of of like, well, what did my pastor say today? That's what I'm supposed to do. We work from the idea that there is a timeless authority in God's word that God has revealed himself through. And we follow it. We seek to follow it in guidance of the Holy Spirit. And we're following something that will never change. And, and you're trying to minister to this person to help them to see and, and ask themselves, what am I basing my feelings and beliefs on? Am I waking up, licking my finger and saying, you know, where's the world telling me to, to base my, my moral rage on today? These are ways that we can minister. Why do you think or feel, feel or believe so strongly about this? What is the basis of your feelings or your beliefs? In closing here, you need to notice the type of issue that the Beatitudes are sloping toward. All right? It doesn't get comfortable here. The first four seem to be making a, a, a cultural correction, right? God's not your genie. He doesn't necessarily make you fit your physical life better. You're actually in a position of blessedness when you have a poverty of spirit or when you mourn or when you're meek or when you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. He's not the conquering Messiah that's come to lift the Roman rule off your shoulders. Blessed are the poor in spirit, seeing their desperate need for the righteous, a righteousness that is not their own. Blessed are those who mourn over the havoc that sin has wreaked on the earth. Blessed are the meek, keeping their strength under the control. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, desiring holiness in their lives and in the world. These are not comfortable things. But the God of all comfort is not necessarily the God of physical comfort. Today's four Beatitudes seem to be more dealing, as I mentioned, with interpersonal conflict. I mentioned it's issues of the heart, but they're heading toward interpersonal conflict here. Do you notice this? Blessed are the merciful, those who withhold paying back people what they deserve. Blessed are the pure in heart, those who aren't better, I'm sorry, those who aren't bitter about the payback 
that people deserve. Right? First, they're, they're merciful. They're not going to pay back what people deserve. They're pure in heart. They're not going to be bitter about it either. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who are actively trying to keep peace with aggressors. And blessed are those who are persecuted, those who are getting harassed, even though they're in the right. In fact, they're getting harassed because they're in the right. If you joined up because, uh, the, with the kingdom of God because you thought it would make your life easier, I'm sorry. Easy? No. Simple? Maybe. It's not about us. It's not about our comfort. It's not about us getting to lay, keep our heads low and just not getting bothered. It's about Jesus and bringing God glory. Something we like to call his gospel mission. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we, like, we want to think of following you as just being a constant incline towards greater and greater peace and greater and greater physical comfort and maybe even greater wealth and health and maybe people leaving us alone. But we see in the progression of your words that we will likely receive, experience joy from following you through persecution. You're following you through relationships that require mercy. Following you as you shine a light on our hearts that need to change. Following you through conflict and needing to make peace. Following you even as people are purposely making life uncomfortable for us in the form of persecution. But we are blessed, Lord, because of everything that we have in Christ. Blessed even still. Blessed to rise above the troubles of this world. Blessed by the fact that none of these things need to eclipse you. Lord, we see in our physical world that the smallest thing, if we hold it in front of our eyes, can eclipse the sun. And no less the smallest inconvenience, the smallest trouble, the smallest difficult relationship, we can allow it to eclipse you if we hold it in front of our vision. Thank you, Lord God, that we look forward to the physical kingdom of God where we get to enjoy your presence. Thank you, Lord God, that you use circumstances in this life to make it all the more a pleasure to focus on the life to come. And thank you in the meanwhile, Lord, that the closeness we get to experience with you actually makes it worthwhile. Lord, thank you that we get to walk with you through all of this. 
knowing Christ is our Savior. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.